This is Talk Is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. That beard just gets better looking every single time I see you, man. I got to keep it uh, powerful for you, buddy. It's intimidating. I'll be honest with you. It's a little intimidating. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, perfect. That's what I strive for. Um, what a cool podcast episode 126 with Danny Coyne uh, one of our wild sheep ambassadors just a fantastic dude and uh, it was beautiful we just asked him a question and sit there and listen to the magic for five minutes it's so knowledgeable so easygoing and just a great dude man oh yeah you know before shows uh, I'm sure you do the same thing we got our little notes of things we want to talk about boxes we want to tick and as Danny's talking, it's like, oh, I don't have to ask that question. Don't have to ask that question. You just made it easy. I, I'm pretty non-existent in this podcast. Actually, it was perfect for me. I just got to enjoy the show, listen to you guys yeah. chat. <laughs> well, it was the other way around on the last one, so yeah, it's nice to split it up. Um, so you know, Danny really is an inspiration, and we talked a little bit about that on the podcast. You'll hear about this. Is that you know, I guess. If you're going to take anything away from this podcast, think about what can I do for conservation? What can I do for wildlife? What can I do for fish? What can I do for the outdoors? Um, and get involved. Um, and Danny, you know, he he's just a walking example of what, what being involved does and how important it is and it, really inspirational. Yeah, when you think of a, an ambassador for what we do or conservation in general, like Danny is the man. That he It's communication. He just... He nails it. He educates every chance he gets. His photography is outstanding, and he uses that as a bridge to to educate people because it opens up doors and conversations you wouldn't normally have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just uh, and like you just start listening to you know he's volunteering for you know the fisheries. He's volunteering on the you know at his local club. He's volunteering for the alliance, the society. It's just. It is like, oh my goodness, like your head's kind of spinning. And, and, and hey, man, I'm surrounded by super dedicated, talented volunteers day in and day out. Like, I look at our board and the society and the volunteers that are involved there. And, 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 uh, but it's really inspiring to see this kind of work. And, you know, you just think of how much conservation work gets done in this province and, and other provinces too, and other countries, blah, blah, blah. But it's incredible how much conservation gets done by volunteers. It's inspiring, man. Yeah, and when you get right down to it, it's only a, a handful of people, and you know you get could only have a few more Danny coins out there. It's get a lot more done. Yeah, yeah, well said. So um, I guess this is a bit of a call to action. If you're thinking about getting involved, there's never been a better time, you know. And it's yeah, we can use you. The society wants you. We're looking for volunteers, and you know, volunteer. I've heard this before. Volunteering looks has very many different faces. Yeah, there's out there, and you're on a capture, and you're wrestling a sheep, and that's the sexy stuff. I've never done that. Have you done that? Nope, never done it. Yeah, no. Dream so about it. That's the stuff we dream about. But there's a ton of other stuff. You know that we've got a work bee in the uh, in Region Four coming up in the Kootenays. So anyone that's interested in getting involved, um, that's going to be led by BC, the BC Ministry, um, WLRS. Um, and, but the society has a volunteer, um, contingent in that. So Justin Kaluski is our contact there. So check out our social media You can get involved if you're in the Kootenai region. And what you're going to do is you're going to go out and you're going to clear some sight lines for bighorn sheep in their winter range. Basically what happens, the area gets overgrown, um, makes it the animals at risk to predators. So they clear up these sight lines. You, they have a much better chance of survival in the winter time. So really important work that's being done there in the Kootenai. So if you're interested and involved with that, but you know, trade shows, all that sort of stuff. I know Greg, you just came off the trade show circuit. You spent a lot of time standing in a booth, but sharing our message, advocacy, outreach, membership development, that's all really important stuff that we do. Oh yeah. That's, that's it's, there's so many different options for volunteers too. You know, you, you talk about the habitat enhancement, we got counts, the, the shows, it's every little bit helps, whether it's even say at our convention, if you're volunteering to help set up, like we need hands, we always need hands. And if, if you don't have a specific volunteer thing and you, you want to go for, send one of us a message, we'll put you on a list and we'll add you to a contact list and Next time there's something that comes up, we we could talk to you. We've all got a a little list of people that we use, and you know I lean on a lot of my guys fairly heavily. I'm sure you do the same, and 
we need those lists to grow and man we we love our volunteers so if you can come out and volunteer for anything we're here yeah well said um okay before we jump into this awesome podcast with danny uh, just a heads up that we've got a really cool event going on this year. This is brand new for the society. It's our Mountain Monarch Golf Tournament. Um, it's in um, Kamloops, and uh, Greg Nalloweg and Mike Surveyor are, are leading this one, and it's going to be a fantastic opportunity. they got a ton of stuff going on with that. There's going to be a whiskey tasting, and um, there's some wicked prizes. Our conservation partners have stepped up. We've got a ton of really great sponsors, and this is going to be a freaking blast. So if you're a golfer, it's worth taking the weekend and going to Kamloops and checking it out. You're going to have a great time. Um, we got limited spots. It will fill up, so don't don't mess around too much. Head over to our website, uh, wildsheepsociety.com forward slash golf, and check out the website and uh, and get involved, get registered. Um, it's going to be a great weekend um, on the links. Well, what a better – or I should say what a better – there's no better place to have a, a golf tournament, in my opinion, right in the heart of Kamloops right in the heart of sheep country they're right down on the green all the time they're there so while you're while you're golfing and having a good time you're going to be staring at sheep at the same time it's you know it's a win-win for everybody well it's funny one of the guys that signed up is like i'm not a golfer i don't actually give a shit about golfing but i'm going to watch the sheep uh i'm gonna drink beer watch my buddies golf and i'm gonna look at sheep i'm bringing my binos and that's all that's going on so i thought that was pretty funny and uh but it's going to be a great weekend. The boys got a great uh, a great uh, program set up. Greg's done this before. He's he hosts his own golf tournament um, through his business, and uh, just you know, by all accounts, it's an absolute riot. So uh, I I was really hoping to attend it. Unfortunately, I'm going to be away on uh, another wild sheep excursion uh, down south, so I'm not going to make it. But uh, it's going to be a great weekend. So yeah, there should be lots of our our team out there. So hopefully, we see. Uh bunch of familiar faces and some new faces and everyone's enjoying some golf and camlips on what was that june 17th yeah exactly yeah well said well let's listen to the man uh mr danny coin in episode 126 of talk is sheep this episode is sponsored by our conservation partner yeti thank you sitka gear and yeti for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems Hey Kyle, how's it going, man? Hey man, awesome. How about you? Going great, buddy. You're looking just, sharp there. Thanks. <laughs> just got back from uh, looking at some fresh lambs off West Side Road, so pretty excited. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I see your cameras in the background there. I'll I'll perch nicely. Oh yeah, yeah. Those are my babies. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. very cool. So, what's going on with uh, they're dropping lambs? Are they on the West Side? Yeah, West Side Road. Um, last couple of years they've been here between like the 16th and 18th so i figured they were there and tonight i counted seven ewes with six lambs and one was really fresh like wobbly legs couldn't even like you know the whole crab walking along so yeah it's it's good that's awesome and they they're um like are they right on the highway you're just looking up at the highway they like literally in the- yeah you gotta look up on the bluffs it's so it's so funny eh? like when you're sitting there and you're you know how this is, Craig. It's when you got a camera and you're looking up, everyone stops and looks at you like, what are you doing? Looking at lambs. What lambs? Well, if you look right up there, well, so yeah, they're quite a ways up on the shelf. Like, I can't get decent pictures because they're like a half, uh, three quarters of a kilometer away. But Awesome. So, hey, you reached out to the society couple like last year and, and you know, there was a bunch of mortality issues on that road. What's going on with that? And are we... Do, are we going to do anything about that? Can we do anything about that? What's the status of that, Danny? Yeah, I want to do some about that big time, man. Like it's more, it's it's vehicle traffic, right? And um, it's, I think we've got probably two or three. I mean, I don't have the numbers on it, but I mean, I've got horns of animals from hit right off the side of the road of, of ewes. And I've got, the, I mean, I sent you photos of how many times they've almost been hit. And even, even Darren Apple came out here, I think it was in, February when he was out here anyways, he's just like, man, people don't even, don't even barely touch the brakes for these sheep. So what I would like to do is try to get together with the, um, the heck they called citizens patrol guys. Like, you know, when the, when you're driving by, it says, this is your speed. So when the lambs come down, we have that purple fetch, a fetch, fetch. I don't know. It's that purple little flower around here. And, and, um, as soon as that starts to come and bloom, those sheep are, and that's right along the ditch. So the sheep come right down on there. 
And it's usually about mid-June. And the lambs are like, I mean, the the ewes are used to the traffic, but as soon as, you know, someone lays on their horn, the lambs aren't. They're not They're not used to it. They're not conditioned to it. So they'll sprint in front of a car and almost get hit. So I know we lose some mortality on it. And I know a couple of those big rams have been hit by cars as well. So um, I'd like to do some sort of campaign where we get the media involved, Wild Sheep Society BC, and then get that that sign that says this is your speed on there. It'd be a good good awareness project. Do you think having like signage on the road, and I know that's problematic because Modi gets involved, and it's uh, that that I think that's a multi like. It's a big process to get signage up there, but or is there good signage already? And it just doesn't. There work. is. It's some of the best signage in the province for for any wildlife, especially for bighorn sheep. Like every corner has a flashing light. It's not that people don't like know that they're there. They just don't. They don't care. It's like they have no idea what is there, you know. And I was we were talking about this at the show last weekend. Like we were applauding radium that community of radium and out the Kootenai Trench and how that community came together to rally up against their sheep. And here we are in the Okanagan with a silent pro- like silent problem that no one is talking about and really doesn't care, right? I mean, those communities out there are very much vacation rentals. People come in with their, from Vancouver and, uh, and Calgary with their high-end cars, go ripping through there and same with their motorbikes and right around the sheep. And it's just, it's kind of sad to see that really. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking uh, citizens on patrol or whatever, some sort of awareness campaign there. And it like I guess the media couldn't hurt, but it's probably not going to help as much, especially if they're out-of-towners that are doing speeding, right? I think like the last, because we did that, um, was it October? I did that post with uh, Info News, and that got a lot of actually, that, that got a lot of attention. A lot of people shared that. Like I know like, I reshared the reach I got alone on that. And then the comments were people like, um, I found more people voicing up for sheep than they have before in our community. So I think media is definitely important. I mean, um, CastNet will jump on it. CHBC will jump on it. Or like I've got some, like through the fishery side of stuff, all those, there's like three different reporters in town that kind of do wildlife stuff. They'll be all over this type of thing. Right. Um, and what role can we do? Like what's, what should the society be doing? Just awareness on social media, that sort of stuff or what? Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty simple. I think we just, I got to reach out to that local citizens on patrol, try them again. They're through the local RCMP and then just see if they're interested. And as long as what I'll do, Kyle, is I can draft up an email, like just presenting myself as like with a representative with the wild sheep society of BC. And this is our concern. And I like to reference the radium because there's so much noise about it. And um, not to, and I also like to mention that it's the one of the healthiest populations of wild sheep we have in BC is in our backyard right here. So, um, and I just say we just need to get their help, and we just pick a day and go out there and just do some awareness. So maybe me and one other volunteer really is all I need on the sheep side of stuff. Right. Yeah. Right on. Awesome, man. Well, hey, welcome to the podcast. And uh, we're rolling, by the way, if you didn't clue in. And uh, that was <laughs> some, some of the best contents caught off uh, uh, when it's just supernatural. But uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, welcome. It's uh, really cool to have you on, Danny. And uh, you do so much on so many levels. And, you know, Greg and I were like, oh, what are we going to talk about, Danny? It's like, you know, we can go any direction with this. And I guess we'll just go every direction, to be honest. So, um, but I, I guess maybe start off, Danny, talk a little bit about, um, you know, where this passion for conservation, the outdoors, fish, wildlife, where does that all come from? Is it like, is it, was this something you're born with or something very, from a very young age, or is this kind of something you've sort of has grown on you? Yeah, so like I grew up in the small town of Princeton, British Columbia, right, right in this like heart of the Similkameen. Um, my family's been on, we have a big farm through there, and my family's been in that territory for hundreds of years. Like my, um, I am a member of the Upper Similkameen Indian Band. And uh, growing up with my dad and my grandfather, they would, I mean, our outings were just amazing. And one of the things that they instilled into me and my brother was, you know, we didn't just walk through the bush. My dad and my grandpa were always telling us like, how the entire ecosystem played like a, a role in each other, like how it all came together. But most importantly, like really truly taught us about like um, we're farmers too. Right. So like understanding like carrying capacity of a landscape and how 
wildfire is good and how you can't have too many animals. And if you don't have enough animals and understanding that, but I guess where it really came from for me is like, I'm a 4-H kid. I'm a 4-H lamb kid. I grew up throughout the 4-H program, incredible program, especially when we live in a small town, get to meet a lot of people. But um, so I had a love for, for livestock and especially sheep. And, um, and then when I moved away, I, uh, I moved out to Cranbrook and that's when I met my wife, Marina. And, you know, we were both fishing and going outdoors and I, I grew up fishing and hunting with my family and such. But, uh, and then when I moved to the Okanagan, I couldn't believe how many people did not have the same opportunity that I did. So when I talked to people like, Hey, you want to go fishing this weekend? Like I've never fished before. What do you mean you never fished before? You're 28 years old. You never fished before. Well, do you hunt? No. Do you even go hiking? Well, kind of. Well, why not? Well, no one's ever taught me that. I said, well, that's kind of crazy. So from there, I was, uh, it was the big shocker for me was when we had a, a kokanee die off in Wood Lake out in the, in the Okanagan. And that's the big light bulb that went off for me is that I knew that people didn't, were not connected to our natural resources, like how I had the privilege to grow up and learn from, from my grandpa and my, and my dad. But also is that I was taken from a resource that I wasn't really acknowledging that needed to have to be given back to. So that was in 2012. And so I just literally, I, I watched it on CHBC News and then I read it in the newspaper about this coconut crash. And then I, so I picked up the phone and I found the, the reporter's phone number and I called her and I said, listen, I want to get involved. How do I, how do I help out? Well, anyway, she connected me with the Old Shula Fish and Game Club. And I met a gentleman named Rick Simpson and an amazing board of directors. Uh, they invited me into the club. They start to mentor me. And then doors just start opening up of opportunity for me to get involved in not just fish, but also in wildlife. So um, I found that it, you have to get people to really care about a resource in order for them to actually want to do something about it. So if they have an invested interest, whether it's, you know, catching a fish or even looking at a photo of an animal on a wall, it reaches them and it connects them with that, with that animal or with that fishery. So I found that that was really important, but then I had to try to get people also engaged into, into it because I also acknowledged that, Hey, there's not a lot of people that again, like I said, is, they didn't have this opportunity. So we started up some learn to fish programs with the Freshwater Fishery Society BC. We started some programs of, um, with the ice fishing program, started off with 14 kids. And then five years later, we had 400, I think it was 436 people on the ice at one time. Like through the program, I counted up, it was over 1500 people, we, like families, we put through this program. And then we start to see the license dollars come through, you know, because they're buying fishing licenses. And then we convert them over to, you know, introduce them into the club. And then the year later, we're seeing these people that never fished before and they're out doing conservation wildlife work. I mean, that is just awesome. They care about it. So as we, you know, if we want to get louder and, and, and about to try to get, you know, when I say louder, louder for the, for the needs of our wildlife, there's a quote that I live by and it was by Teddy Roosevelt. And it says, uh, wildlife and their habitat cannot speak. So we must and we will. And man, is that ever powerful if you think about that? You know, you look at that bighorn sheep and it's like, the things being the whole herd's being riddled by Movi. Well, it can't do anything, but you know what? We can, right? And I don't think it's like our, it's not our obligation, but it's our privilege to be able to help these animals and help our natural resources. So, and then, uh, you know, I got involved with the, the fishing side of stuff and then um, the pandemic hit and uh, I've always wanted to, uh, Greg, watch, watch looking at Craig and, and uh, Greg, sorry, um, pictures and, and Darren and Peter's pictures. I'm like, man, I really want to get some photos like these guys. So I went out and learned how to do wildlife photography, which was kind of a dream of mine. And that opened up a whole nother door of conversation to a, a demographic of people that are not our, maybe our community directly. But now I'm having like, you know, the one campfire kind of scenario, I'm having these conversations with non-hunters that, you know, they're taking photos of these animals, but they don't know a lot about them. And I'm able to educate them. And I'm coming in there from a hunter's community, like a hunter's community base and being able to connect with them on that level. And all of a sudden us hunters aren't so bad. And I love seeing people now taking their pictures with the Wild Sheep Society BC that was at once was opposed to hunting, you know? So um, it's all about connecting the dots. So I know that's a long winded answer, Kyle, but that's kind of where I'm at with that. 
That's awesome. There's so much I want to peel back there. And I guess the one thing that, you know, really resonated with me was your comment about people are not connected to natural resources. And, you know, you talked about one of the ways that you do that, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to Rogan today and uh, Joe Rogan was talking exactly that. Like a lot of people, like there's too many people out there that, you know, when I go hunting, I see too many people. we got to keep people out. And Rogan's like, that's the only way we're going to keep this thing going. If people aren't connected to wildlife and don't care, we're screwed. So um, I guess maybe I'd love to hear your perspective and, and Greg jump into about, you know, how do we keep people engaged? And, and, and there's this whole urban rural thing that's happening in BC where everyone's in these big cities and there's this really loss of connection to wildlife and fisheries and all that sort of stuff. And there's just no exposure. So how can we build on that? Of course, take people fishing, take people hunting, but what else can we do? Yeah, for me, I think it's just like literally doing more outreach. At an, like the problem with the hunting community is we have a PR problem in my personal opinion. You know, everyone thinks we're all about the grip and grin, which we're not. That's like, that's a, that's the, for actually, if you ask any hunter, if you can keep any photo of your sheep hunt, what's the photo? Or sorry, if you had to get rid of one photo of all your sheep hunts, and but you get to keep all the rest, they'd probably tell you, I, I, I want to keep all my adventure pictures leading up to that point. So we, we need to have open communication with these people, but like with the people that don't understand it, but also getting out there and sharing our story from our aspect of like how much we truly care about these animals and look for those opportunities. You know, like when I'm out there with my 600 millimeter lens, it stops a lot of people in their tracks and they look at me and they go, wow, that's a, that's a crazy camera you got there. And then it just opens up this, I'm like, perfect. The door's open and I'm walking in, I'm going to have this conversation with them. And I do lead the conversation down and, and I tell them, you know, my, they ask, well, how did you get into it? I'm like, well, I'm a hunter. And like, well, wait a minute. And we start to have this conversation, but it's a conversation that we're both at the same table. Um, but, you know, like this last week we were at the BC Interior Sportsman Show and I had, uh, my goal there was to educate as many people as I could on the three diseases that we had through the Okanagan in the last five years about with our wild sheep population. And the amount of awestruck faces I saw when people did not know that we had Movi in our in our area or didn't even know what it was. Um, so having those conversations and looking for those opportunities is, is, is really important to do so. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing, you know, you're the photography leads into those conversations. It gives you a good opportunity to open up and educate. And that's, that's how we're going to get to people is the education aspect of it. Right. And, you know, you're one of the great ambassadors and you even have that title with us. You're a wild sheep ambassador for the wild sheep society. You know the newest one, one year old now, I guess. But yeah. uh, you know your your voice and the the way you communicate through your photos as well. It's it's been incredible for us, and we appreciate that. Uh, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. So, Danny, you talked about um, uh, you grew up. Was it? Did you grow up in a First Nations uh, community, uh, like at a young age, or or how did that work? I, I'm just curious about that because where I want to head with this is. Uh, traditional knowledge, right? You know, and, and I'd like to talk a little bit about more of that and whether or not you grew up in the First Nations community or whether, you know, it was a, on a farm as well. There's so much knowledge on the land base, the traditional knowledge or the knowledge that, you know, as a uh, you being on the landscape understand. Um, how important is that knowledge in, you know, in science today? Yeah, so I grew up, like I did grow up on a farm and um, my history on the First Nation side is that if you're aware of a gentleman named John Fall Allison, he was the first uh, uh, European settler in the Princeton area and he found the Allison Pass, which is between Hope and Princeton, pretty much opened up the the, in, the Similkameen area. And uh, his uh, wife was Nora Yakatikam of the Upper Similkameen and that was my second great-grandmother. So I'm off that side of the First Nation side. So... Um, my grandfather, like we didn't grow up on a reserve, like we grew up on, <laughs> we have a ranch. We literally have a sign that says Coinville population 23. And <laughs> we're all there for the last hundred years. I'm still the only coin boy that left the farm. I'm the black sheep of the family. But, uh, <clears throat> the one thing that like, I was able to grow up with my grandfather on that same farm and, uh, as well as my dad. And it was a regular occurrence of us going out together, um, you know, I remember this one time and I was just a young kid with my first pellet gun. And anyways, this 
bunch of pigeons came down and start eating all the sheep's grain. So I figured, well, I'd do some predation control, I guess, or whatever <laughs> against the grain. So I came all came back all proud, holding on to a pigeon. My grandpa looked at me and goes, and it was a look that I was not expecting. Well, anyways, I plucked that pigeon and ate it that night. And that was the last time I ever harvested anything that I should have never harvested. So, you know, <laughs> uh, wasn't, wasn't that pleasant, but it was a, it was a good learning experience for me. Um, and then like, even like, uh, we grew up with, you know, there's growing up in the, in the, um, in the area of like farms and stuff like that, you know, you have, you have dirt bikes, you have ATVs and such, but you know, they even taught me like, don't be, you know, this is, a riparian area. Do you know what this plays in role with this? Like, do you know how this connects to everything else? And then, you know, this is grasslands. Don't be, don't be ripping your bike through there because that's going to destroy it and how long it takes to come back. So, I mean, it's, that's kind of where my connection into it. And then very much on the farming side of stuff. Uh, I mean, a lot of people did not want to, I think Jason Bellow said it and I, uh, on his podcast and I laughed pretty good. He's like, no one ever wanted to visit him on the summertime. I know that feeling because Everyone's going to work if they come to the coin house. <laughs> awesome. Um, so does the the farm life call for you? Like obviously you're highly connected to the outdoors. You do you spend all your free time, you know, touring around, spending your time outside. Do you still do you have that calling to the farm at all or are you good where you're at? I go back and play a lot, that's for sure. Um, in the late nineties there were some changes done to like the farming, the way that you can actually process your own as a small farmer process your own meat so we actually got out of the livestock game a lot and then we went to more of the alfalfa so i don't miss picking bales or changing pipes at all so that's fine i miss having you know our cows and our sheep that's for sure but actually it's one of the main drivers that actually got me like we hunted growing up and such but it was one of the main drivers that made me a serious hunter was that you know i grew up like i said was through the 4-h program understanding like i could butcher my own animal at the age of 13 like I knew how to break the animal down. I mean, that's how I was judged on my 4-H lambs and everything else. But when I moved out and when my parents got rid of their livestock, because even all the kids, my brother went to college, I moved out and uh, I had to start buying my own meat. And it was one of the first times I realized this beef doesn't taste like what our beef tasted like. And are you kidding me? A leg of lamb costs $50. This is ridiculous. And then I started to look at like, well, what's in this meat? Why does it taste so different? Oh, I don't want to put that in my body. So that's when I went back to hunting is like, now I became a serious hunter. Like I want to hunt for my food and I want to, I live a very nutritional organic type of diet as much as I can. And uh, that's what calls to me for hunting as much. So would you say that the majority of your, the stuff you eat and meat wise is, is harvested by yourself or it's wild meat in some capacity, fish and that sort of thing? Yeah, I would say at least 70, 70, 80% of my diet of protein is definitely wild game or, or fish that I've caught myself. And then uh, my parents have a lot of vegetable, like I have a very large vegetable farm. So they do the farmer's market. Well, my wife and I go out there every fall, we harvest, we actually like, can or we like blanch the, the vegetables, it's all organic. And then we freezer it and then we eat that for most of the year. So if we're eating it's always nice when you look at, I mean, I think you guys know the same feeling. When you look at that plate and you go, I put that food there and I know where it came from. There's no better feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the 4-H aspect of it. I grew up too in, in 4-H and, um, oh. you know, just loved it. Uh, I, I was, we were in, well, I was in horse and beef and uh, never had any, we didn't have any sheep. We weren't in the sheep world there. But, um, you know, how much of an appreciation does that give you for, I guess, you know, uh, not wildlife, I guess, animals really. Um, I know that it certainly played an impact for me and was that, imp and I guess being on the farm too. So, you know, how does that, even just domestic animals, how, how did that sort of frame your, I guess, respect for animals? So a couple of ways, first of all, I'm going to talk about the disease because when I watched transmission, I got really upset <clears throat> because we could, this is so preventable. And, you know, as a 4-H kid, one of the first things we learn about any animal, like sheep or cows or horse, is that it's our responsibility to be ethical farmers to, um, to, to make sure our animals aren't sick or they're not going to pass on any other thing to wildlife. So when I was watching the transmission film, like, I, it brought me back to the days of, uh, I can't remember the young name, the, the family, the young, or sorry, the young family's name there that was in radium in the film, but 
it reminded me so much of my mom and dad when I was younger, but we used to put all of our sheep through copper sulfate baths to make sure like that's a foot bath to make sure we don't put foot rot on the, I mean, we, we used to free range our sheep. Um, and then we check for sore mouth. I mean, my family did not have big money. It wasn't, so they were very responsible farmers and that's the way we learned uh, in throughout the 4-H program. But what we learned was that how much it can quickly affect if you take a domestic herd and put it across it over to, you know, if you're, if you're free ranging, which a lot of us do in British Columbia, we have responsibilities there. And I'm not saying that the farmer today is not that, you know, is, is turning a blind eye at responsibilities. I mean, Kyle, you've been through the 4-H program and you know, farmers are, are extremely passionate about this. I mean, 99.9% of them are, but it, I've had these conversations now about Moby with other sheep farmers. They don't even know what it, what it is. Like not like most of them don't know what it is. And I've had talks with X 4-H people. And I ask them, Hey, what do you think about this? Or what is that? And they have no idea. I'm like, this is, this blows my mind on this. So there's that aspect, but then it's also helped me actually enter the conversation. That's so hard to have. And that's when someone, I mean, I've had experiences where I'm selling my photos at a Christmas craft fair and people come racing up to me and just, how dare you want to have to kill these animals as, and they're accusing me for being a hunter. And then I look at that opportunity as an opportunity because I approach those conversations actually as a farmer. So when someone points at a big, I have a nice, beautiful, a couple of beautiful photos of huge elk and uh, people look at me and go, how can you even try to, to kill that animal. So then I, I always bring the conversation back to, okay, some along the lines of, if you have a hundred head of cattle and you have 20 bulls in that field, all trying to breed. And out of those 20, you have five old boys that have already passed on their genetics. They're as old as old can be. The first thing that that rancher is going to do is not have those bulls breed that herd. The reason why is because you need, he's already done his job. He's already passed the genetics on, right? So I take that kind of, that aspect and I apply it to wildlife as well. So when someone's telling me, you know, like we had that big full curl uh, uh, stone sheep uh, mount at the show, it goes like, that's an old one, too bad it was shot. I'm like, that thing wasn't even probably even see another winter. That, that thing was like 10 to 11 years old. That, that is an old boy. So harvesting that animal makes zero impact. Just like if the, if the cattle rancher chooses to take that old bull out of the, the corral and let his genetics, which he's done a great job, yet let the younger bulls do their job and breed the rest of the herd. So it allows me to, and once it's funny when you have this conversation, you start to connect it to from wildlife management to farming management, people are like, ah, the light bulb goes off. It's like, well, that makes sense. And then, you know, it, it's, it creates a, it brings the hostility down a little bit. And now we can have that open conversation, but you probably had the same thing, Kyle. Like I remember showing at the PE and I had activists come up to me on my market lamb and uh, we were trained from like 13 years old on how to deal with some of these conversations. Yeah. I kind of lived in the backwater part of the world. There wasn't too many activists out there. Oh, so yes, there you uh, go. Yeah, I guess that's the one. But I do find it shocking now. I see these 4-H kids and, you know, there's protests and there's people, you know, coming after them and, you know, making them really uncomfortable. It's it's incredible. Uh, it really, really shocked me that, you know, they're so, so engaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it does come down like, like I remember going through after that one show that we went through and they uh, they put us through a little short program of just change our vocabulary. It makes sense. Instead of saying butchering, we say process. You know, instead of saying killing, we dispatch. You know, it's just we use the same jargon, I guess you can say when we're talking about hunting. Yeah, it's interesting. And then you talk to some of the old boys and, you know, you kind of, um, you know, they they don't like, you know, kill, killing an animal harvest, you know, that sort of thing. And they, you know, it's like, no, it's that you're not being honest about what you're doing. It's like, well, no, I think we're just talking a little differently, right? A little bit more sensitively, I guess. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, not everyone's conditioned like we are to those words when they're not, you know, grow, when they grow up around, when they don't grow up around it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, so you've done a ton of stuff in the, the fishing world um, and the hunting. Do you, do you have a preference when you, when you think about going outside and you want to, and I see you're, you're grabbing your camera now, you hunt, you fish, you know, is there one that stands out for the other or, or does it kind of change as you go or, 
how does how do you choose what you do for when you recreate? Uh, I would probably right now put. I mean, if my freezer's full, it's definitely the wildlife photography. That's for sure. I'd rather go. I mean, Peter and I were talking about the same thing. Like, if I'm going to go on a sheep hunt, which I one day I hope to pull the draw that I would love to pull. But I'd, I would actually be the guy. with like, I'll bring my camera. You bring a rifle. I'll be your pack boy. Let's go. Let's go document this this uh, adventure. You know, um, I just love being out there. And then I would say like hunting for sure. And then I got to fishing takes the very back seat now. That's that's a definite. Yeah. <laughs> right on. So would you say as you kind of mature now, like, and you talk about grabbing the camera first, almost, um, is that, is it, do you feel, feel this is a maturity thing? You've kind of gone out, you've done your thing. And of course you want to fill the freezer and all that sort of stuff, but you know, you're not proving anything. You don't need to sort of, uh, you know, get anything in, you know, to, to prove anything to anyone. So is, has that changed with, I guess, maturity or age? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Actually. I remember the first like few years I was, first getting uh, like seriously getting into hunting. Like when I was a kid, I would go with my dad, but I mean, I'm talking like in the last 10 years here, like, you know, those first couple of years, like I just, it was crazy about it. Like I just, it's all like, all like, um, I, I would chase anything I could and, and, uh, try to fill as many tags as I could. But then, then I started to realize, and you know, the same transition happened when I went from like fishing and then I realized that, you know, you don't have, there's, you don't have to, uh, you know, sh- catch everything and and keep it. You can catch and release. And then understanding of like what the ethics behind it, like, yeah, your limit might be five fish per day, but really do I need those five fish? And can this, you know, fishery sustain me fishing the same fishery for 25 days of the year? Like, so a lot of times I'll, I, I grew that way of like, instead of getting my limit every day, it's like, okay, I'm going to catch and release today for the hunting side. The first couple of years. Yeah. I was like, I was a nut. I was going after, you know, just whatever I could legally could go after. Um, but now I've realized, and also too, like I've grown and I've become a better hunter. So, um, you know, if, if I know if I go out for a good week hunt, I'm going to be able to pretty much harvest something, but um, I'm not looking, I mean, I, I'll, I'll shoot a four point or greater, you know, on a mule deer. I'm not going to, you know, that any buck season I try to stay away from because maybe back then I was trying to go after it, but now I just, I, I have more confidence in myself, but it's not about the kill anymore. It's about just getting out there. And I love going out with more, more than anything. I just love getting mentoring other people in the hunting. That's, that's actually what gets me jazzed up more than anything is getting, being able to mentor someone. I mentored a new hunter this year and he got his, uh, his first muley and um, I was able to show him how to field dress it. He was, we were lucky. He, he shot it right by a Creek in the hot weather. So I was like, yes, yes, you're going to easy this time, man. Um, so yeah, doing that definitely matured that way is that going, I progressed definitely over the last 10 years. All right on. So, um, I think you've did by the looks of, of your history, you've done a lot of mentor and what you talked about earlier, a lot of mentorship on the fishing side, um, is the, the hunting mentorship kind of new and are you still doing the fishing, uh, mentorship? How, how does that tie in the two of those? Yeah, definitely. Like just the other night I did a, Kokanee webinar for the BC Wildlife Federation. And the reason why I think it's still important on the fishing side is because, again, if we got to connect these people, like if people have never hunted, the easiest way I find to get them transitioned over to become a hunter is to actually get them fishing. And then it's like a stepping stone, right? Like, I mean, that's really how I went through it. But it's also not just about like hunting, but it's about, for me, I'm like looking at the, the revenue model side of things, like for the fisheries, get them fishing, they buy fishing licenses. They come over the hunting side, they start to buy hunting licenses. So now we've got some money coming from them. But also too, is as soon as they start doing that, they start to care and feel connected and, and want to actually get, you know, write, they will write letters to their uh, local politicians about when there is a problem in the area. So I definitely will still do the mentoring on the fishing side, uh, more introducing, you know, the, the amateurs into it. On the hunting side, um, I'm cautious of how many people, because I'm still like, I would not call myself an advanced hunter in any way. So I'm still learning. I still have my mentors I'm learning from. So, I mean, yeah, in the future, definitely, but not nearly as many as I, I did with fishing. That's for sure. Right on. So you talk about mentors. So what kind of mentors, who's mentoring you now? Who's who's out there and keeping Danny Coyne on the straight and narrow and teaching him new things? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I did have a, like one, my biggest mentor was Sean Richardson. And unfortunately we lost him uh, to cancer a couple of years ago. 
he taught me so much. And uh, really, it goes down to the guys from the Osceola Fishing Game Club, like uh, Nick Kozov, he's the president of the club in Region 8, uh, Jesse Zeman, you know, the, he's from the Federation. Um, so those are the guys I chat with on a regular basis and, you know, pick their brains. I do a lot of solo hunting. Like my wife, I got my wife into hunting and that's been a game changer. So there's a lot more days out there hunting in the fall, which is great. Um, and she's way better at spot and stalking than I am. I will say that. <laughs> so um, yeah, those are the guys. I mean, that's my biggest piece of advice too, is if anyone wants to learn how to hunt is just join your local fish and game club. Like there's so many, like there's so many generations of knowledge that are just eager to share it. Yeah. Awesome. So has uh, Marina harvested anything yet? Have you've taken her out? Has she gotten anything? Oh yeah. She's harvested two good sized muleys. She put me to nice. shame. Like, yeah. And <laughs> she's a hell of a shot. <laughs> That's cool. So Greg, I know that you and your wife, you've got her hunting now too. And interesting, Danny, my, my wife just, you know, she, she started hanging out a bit more doing this stuff with our conservation group and with the wild sheep society of bc and now she's into it as well so she's doing her core as we speak and uh we're her and i just started signed up for an archery course together so um but i always wondered is this like a, a marriage enhancer or is it a marriage breaker is it is it strengthen your relationship or does it weaken it, it? strengths in it man yeah, is that yeah right? when i when i got my core and i and uh um i was telling about like how really like it's 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 not just going to teach about hunting it's going to teach about all like we've all been to the core program like it teaches you so much about wildlife so now she's picking like we're going to the local pond she's like oh that's this type of duck that's this i'm like yeah good good like she uh so it's it's uh it's definitely a marriage enhancer awesome and it, no competition or it's all it's oh, all no, good <laughs> yeah uh awesome cool um Okay, let's talk. Uh, so, I, I noticed on your um, on your profile that you talked about uh, BC Fish and Media. What's what's that about? Tell, tell us about what that is. Yeah, so BC Fish and Media is just a like what happened. Like it's it's bcfishing.com. It's a website that I started up, I guess, twelve years ago. And um, my brother was building blog websites, just learned how to build websites. So he said to me, he goes, "I'm going to build you a fishing blog, and I want you to write a couple articles." I said, "Well." I never really written before. I mean, I barely passed English in high school. Like, I don't know if I can do this. He's like, well, I'm building you a website. He's my older brother. So I'm like, all right, Spencer, I'll, I'll write you an article. So a month goes by and then he uh, sends me a text. He's like, are you going to write me this article or not? I'm like, all right, I just came back from walleye fishing. Let me write you a walleye fishing article in the Columbia River. He posts it. And then uh, within like two weeks, I had like 2,000 views on this one article. It's like, damn, this is a lot of people reading that he goes, calls me up and goes, did you see the numbers? You got to write it, write me another one. He goes, you're a kokanee guy, write some kokanee stuff. All right. So I start writing some other stuff. Well, my inbox starts to get full. I'm like, Oh, this is cool. There's a lot of people here that need to, that, that want this. And uh, so I approached it at a non pretentious aspect. Like I want to reach the family you know, the normal angler going out, the guy that doesn't take him too, take himself too seriously and just to get out there and do some fishing. And uh, that's how I write all my articles. And it really took off for me. So uh, on average, we'll get about anywhere between, I don't know, 15 to 20,000 views, like unique visitors to the site. I got to get my site update. We're, we're struggling with that right now. Um, and then it opened up a ton of doors for me. I had a, got a call from Bob Loomis from Max Lure down in the States. Um, if you know the fishing rod company g loomis with the g loomis rods well bobby loomis and his uncle gary started that company and ran it so this is like the tiger woods to me for for fishing and he mentored me and took me on and taught me a lot and then uh it opened up uh, some freelance writing for some like western woods and water magazine some other articles some other story publications and then it uh i'm on the tv show the northwest outdoorsman so and that's uh throughout the entire pacific northwest and uh yeah, all the way from Oregon, sorry, California, Oregon, all that whole area, and then up all the way through Canada with uh, Wild TV. So yeah, it's been a it's been a ride. But where I get the most excitement is when I'm able to do things like I did the other night with the webinar, introducing people to to fishing, and then I get those emails going. I appreciate the help, but can you help me some more and giving them information? And then about a week later, they send me a picture of their first kokanee or their first rainbow that I help them catch. 
That's uh, that's fantastic. Okay, tell me a little bit about Northwest Outdoorsman. What is what's involved with the show? Let's talk about that for a second. All right. Yeah. So uh, Richie Hurd, re- like he's talking about mentors. He's like my best buddy mentor. Uh, he he lives outside of Wenatchee at Leavenworth, Washington, and uh, he owns a company named Herod Outdoors. And the, he has the the film or the, the the show called the Northwest Outdoorsman, and it's a hunting primarily and fishing show. So um, we were getting a really rolling, like we did, I think four episodes together, and then the pandemic hit. Uh, all we were doing fishing ones throughout, like up by uh, we did one up a nice fishing one here in the Okanagan. We did a, a couple up in the in the Caribou. I dropped in the Washington, did some shows with them there, um, and it's a it's a documentary kind of storytelling kind of style of hunting show fishing show um and again it's about normal guys going out there not guided you're not with a guide it's us going out there doing it on our own so there's going to be days that we'll be out there not catching fish and not you know not harvesting an animal but that's just the way it goes so it's just telling the journey awesome so are you sticking strictly the fishing side are you going to start doing some hunting stuff as well with them no we it's kind of a little bit difficult between the borders right on that side so we're trying to uh, arrange it. I mean, Richie's just so busy, and uh, um, we're going to try to arrange it where he comes up as uh, to film a hunt up here in, in BC with me eventually one of these days. Yeah, it's just lining our, our schedules up. Yeah, right on. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the webinar. So you do the webinar. Um, you did that with the BCWF. Is there? Do you guys do? Do you guys take anyone out on the on the lake and and go through any of the stuff, or is it just talk them through it and then they're on their own? Yeah, it's just we don't do any sort of guiding that sort of thing. It's it's all like classroom type of sessions. So um, part of the BC fishing thing as well as I'll, I'll actually with uh, Max Luer, I'll I'll pretty much tour around the province and give him learn to fish um, like seminars. So I'll go into retailers, trade shows, that sort of thing, and and uh, educate people how to how to fish. Awesome, very cool. Um, Okay, so let's transition a little bit to your volunteer work. So there's the mentorship side, um, and then I th- are you still a director with uh, the Okanagan Fisheries Foundation, or are you still involved with them? So the Okanagan Fisheries Foundation is kind of went a little quiet right now, but where I'm spending most of my time uh, on the fishery side of stuff is the Oshawa Fishing Game Club. And then what we're doing that's a big project actually is, so I'm a fisheries committee chair there, and I have been for the last about 10 years. So if anyone's familiar with the Okanagan area, we have a large lake called Kalamalka Lake and, uh, and Wood Lake. And those are two of the largest natural producing kokanee lakes we have in our province. And uh, for the last, I guess, eight years, I ran a fish trap program where we actually trap uh, spawning kokanee that come up the creeks. I recruit about a volunteer team of about 60, yeah, about 60 to 65 volunteers that we start from mid-September to the end of October, three checks a day to the trap. And then the ministry team comes in at night and scoops the fish and checks them. So it's, it's organizing a lot of volunteers. The fish trap, my dad and I made it. Um, we built it out of aluminum. Um, it was a, it, it's been used in the Wood Lake as well, like Middle Vernon Creek that feeds in the Wood Lake and then as well as uh, Cold Stream Creek that goes into Kalamalka Lake. So I've done that. That's a big project. I've sat on the Sport Fishing Advisory Committee for Region 3 and 8 for the DFO. Um, that's been a really good opportunity to kind of, especially with the um, non-titled salmon, like sockeye fishery in Asuias, getting in there and helping, you know, give some recommendation for regulations, when the closures, when the opening should happen. Working very close with the Okanagan Nation Alliance, um, uh, that group does to, to mitigate those regulations. Um and then, yeah, the Freshwater Fish Society of BC is that putting on these learn to um, learn to fish events. And then just the other day, they called me and um, we put up the net in Shannon Lake for the kids, um, the kids fishing. So pretty much, I'm the guy that if they need some volunteers, give me a call. I'm going to find them. So we'll get we'll get the work done. Very cool. So talk me through the fish trap. How does that work? You got the volunteers. They're checking the trap, and then they move in the fish into a holding tank and then or, or how does that work what is, what's the involved yeah, so what we do is like the trap the the creek is about 25 feet wide so what we do is literally put a fence up it's a aluminum fence made out of um, expanded aluminum and then in the very middle of it there's like this cage with a funnel and the kokanee will swim through because they're looking for any opening they can to go upstream and even if they come back through the funnel they swim back into it because they're so keyed in on of swimming upstream just like salmon right 
And then as they get, they get stuck in the trap. And that's why we have volunteers that come three times a day because we don't want these kokanee in this trap. And the trap is eight feet by four feet, eight feet long and four feet and four feet. So they get in this trap and it's underneath water and it's, uh, it's about, I guess, three feet underneath water. And then uh, we scoop the fish, we count the fish. And all we do is we put the fish on the other side of the trap so they can continue to go upstream. And the reason that we're doing this, it's actually quite interesting because since the 50s, they've been doing visual counts of street of uh, stream spawners. So they would, I believe the old equation was that for every fish you saw, you would times it by 1.5 and that would convert to how many fish are actually in the system. Well, what we did is we, for five years straight, we compared the visual counts on that old formula to literally catching every single fish and counting them by hand. So now we have 100, well, 99.9% accuracy to the guesstimate, right? And we are finding it's more closer to 2.3, 2.4 conversion rate. So we've been using a wrong formula since like, you know, the last 50 years almost. So this formula is going to be used for the entire Okanagan now. And we're going to probably, uh, Freshwater Fish Society will probably be adapting that to, uh, or adopting it for the rest of the province. We'll see what happens there. Yeah, that was my question. Was it specific to the creek or is that specific to the, the species or the entire province or, or how does that formula work? Yeah, it'll be for kokanee, for uh, stream spawning kokanee. And then we had another trap through the um, Penticton fly fishers. We're running a trap down in Penticton as well off Penticton. I think it was Penticton Creek. And they were doing the same, same type of idea, same project, and they were getting the same numbers. So the same conversion rate was was definitely uh, so it'll be applied for the entire valley, Okanagan Valley. But there should be real no reason that there be a difference between these fish and other fish throughout the province. Yeah, very cool. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about. Um, so you've been doing a lot of work with the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Let's talk about your role and what you do with those guys. Yeah, so um, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. So Darren Epp contacted me, and Darren Epp's been a great mentor for me for um, my wildlife photography. And uh, so he reached out to me. He knows I'm a goat nut. On our farm in Princeton, actually, I'm, I'm spoiled, man. We've got 38 resident mountain goats that live right in front of my mom and dad's house or on the wow. bluffs. So cool. I got to grow up. Well, they didn't actually move in there thick until I was about 19 years old. But every time I go home, there's the goats. There's And watching them is it, literally we sit there in the yard and – just look up and we watch these goats. It's amazing. So I've been, I'm really, it's one animal I'm really connected to. I love mountain ungulates. And uh, so I got the opportunity to go take some photos that most people can't get. And uh, Darren contacted me and says, I know that you, you know, you enjoy goats as much as I do. And would you want to get involved with the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance? And I said, absolutely. Because I find that there's not a lot of attention to goats in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, a lot of the same concerns that with wild sheep are happening with goats as well. I mean, habitat loss, there's disease coming. So the goats needed a voice. So um, I hopped on board there and I'm now the um, Okanagan Regional Representative for the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. So we'll be working with the ministry as well as the Wild Sheep Society BC, hopefully doing the bunch of counts, um, counting the goats, um, uh, recruitment, and, you know, just getting more outreach programs going about awareness. Um, so is your, I guess, your main job as um, a representative to, to be liaising with government or is it uh, coordinating volunteer stuff? Is it all that stuff? Uh, how does it differ, say, from a director? I guess, obviously, you're not in a board meeting, but what other, what's the differences there? Yeah, it'll literally be me connecting with my local biologist to make sure like, Hey, if they have something that needs to be done, that we're here to assist for that volunteer work, but also to, to be the eyes out there that I can bring it to the biologist if there's a concern. And then also doing like we like any membership, you need to grow your membership. So creating awareness and recruitment. Um, but then like we had one, um, uh, one thing came up in the, in the Kootenays of a, a possible resort going to the back country that had a very, possible threat to goat and wells grizzly uh, area. So we hopped on that and, and brought it through our science and conservation committee and decided that it was best that we reached out to our politicians. So I wrote that letter on behalf of the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance to bring the awareness and saying that, hey, we would like to see some more you know, evidence here that this is not going to affect our goat population in the area, just some more science. And uh, we got a good response from that. Awesome. So um, what, what's the main stuff going on with the Alliance right now? So I, I'm a life member, a huge, uh, 
advocate. Love what you guys do. Love the leadership team. Love love the reps. And, and I see you guys really growing in BC. I see reps kind of all throughout the province now. It's really good representation. Let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing and change with the Alliance these days. Yeah, it, it is starting to grow pretty quick in the interest of it. And uh, um, I really think a lot of it, like for me, I found the Rock Mountain Alliance through the Wild Sheep Society of BC. Like I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know. And then I watched that. Yeah. I think it was a meat eater episode that had the guy from stone glacier on there. And then he said something about it. And then I, and then I found the video of how to properly identify a nanny to a Billy. And that's the other thing too, is that um, we're really big in helping educate people on like, is this a nanny or is this a Billy? And I provided a ton of pictures for that as well. Like on our social media campaigns, we'll be, we'll post it like, and they're, you know, they're, they're not up close photos. We'll say, is this a nanny or a Billy? And it's great to see all the people and man, I've stared hundreds of hours through a lens at, at goats and there's still times I'm like, man, is that, yeah, I know it's a Billy. No, maybe it's an Annie, <laughs> you know, it'll change. So doing that education, but the big thing that we're working right now is a standard operating procedure right now on to how to properly like get a count together. So that way, when we approach biologists, not just in BC, but like in all of North America, that we approach a biologist, that we have a template that we can go to and say like, this has been worked on with other biologists and we're going to collect the data in which way that you guys are going to need to use it. And it's going to be pretty much a fail safe kind of standard operating procedure on how we handle our accounts. And I know Jeff down in uh, the lower mainland, I believe he just, I believe he just finished account. I think he started to use that or he will be using it. So um, I haven't had a chance to connect with him lately, but um, I'm really excited to see that because when you do go into conversations with biologists, some biologists, they know how to use the information. And then some other biologists going, I don't, I don't know how this is going to apply, but because the Rocky Mount Goat Alliance has that science and conservation committee made up of some top notch biologists and, and informed folks there, um, they're able to help transition this information into practical information, information for management. Right on. Okay. So you talked a little bit about uh, recruitment and membership. So if somebody's interested in the Alliance, how do they get involved? How can they reach out to you, go to the website? What's the best thing to do there? Yeah, go to the website, go to alliance.org and uh, definitely sign up for the yearly membership. And then um, on there, my um, there's a contact page. You can go to uh, just find me on, on Instagram or, or um, Facebook too as well, or just danny at goatalliance.org. Send me an email if you're uh, in the, especially if you're in the Okanagan or Kootenai area, definitely want to connect with you if you want to get involved. We need some more eyeballs out there for sure. How are the interior goats doing? Are they looking good? Are they struggling? And what, what's what's it looking like in uh, the BC's interior? Well, what I can see so far is like, I mean, we've got some pockets of concern. Like they're up in, um, in the cusp area, uh, the New Denver area. There are some questions there. Um, we just got a collaring project that the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance helped to get. So I haven't seen the data through that yet, but there has been a, a number of years of concern up there. So we're hoping to see that information come through. In the Okanagan, man, like Okanagan is the milking goats, in my opinion. I mean, I grew up in this area and I've never seen so many. It's it, it's looking really, really good. I mean, those burns definitely help out. I mean, it's uh, we've had a lot of burns in the last, you know, five, six years through this area. So I'm finding that it's definitely helped that goat population. Along the Similkameen, there are, there are tons of goats through there like I've never seen before. I was just glassing at Okanagan Mountain Park the other day and I counted like I think it was 36 goats just off the one off the one ledge, which was good because there's a nice draw in there and that nice LEH. And um, I, I don't know what uh, the biologists have for their information there recently from the last year's counts, but it's looking pretty promising in my opinion. Awesome. So abundant habitat, disease isn't really an issue. Winters are pretty mild in the uh, Okanagan in the interior. So, you know, what's the biggest threat? How are they predators? What's what's the big risk for goats in the area? Well, right now, like for for these low altitude goats, there's definitely that Moby, you know, because we've got we've got that on the Okanagan Mountain Park sheep and they share winter range. I mean, those goats are overlapping a lot on them. So I was talking to the local biologist and he's like, we don't really know exactly, you know, if, if the goat herd has been affected yet or not on it. And uh, Darren and I have been talking like, man, we want to get in there. Just, you know, just gla- put some glass like close on some goats to see if it, any movie, you know, symptoms are showing or not. I mean, based on what I can see, I mean, I'm counting from, you know, from the lake and up, but um, it, there's still quite a few goats in there, but you just never know. Right. I mean, 
looking at the how hard it hits and how fast it can move through a herd it's it's that's definitely a um a concern predation yeah man there's where i like i told you we have these 38 resident goats on our on our property and i mean in front of our place we've got like a, a mountain face that's a rock mountain face goes up like 1500 feet but on the very top there is a grassland and there's this ledge that these goats usually just use throughout the winter time and i uh I go up to this ledge and I thought there were goat tracks. When I looked down, it was actually all wolf tracks. And these wolves were actually pushing these goats. And I followed these. I couldn't believe it. These wolves were actually pushing these goats like out on the ledge. But seeing where those wolf tracks were going, like these things are, I mean, it was a tough winter this year for like with the snowpack. But those goats, or sorry, those uh, wolves were definitely keying in on those goats, 100%. So, and then cats, cougars in here as well. They, they'll, they'll pick off the you know, goat as well. Yeah. So you talked about 38. Is that been fairly consistent? Like, are you, I'm guessing you're out there counting them every year, obviously, yeah. right? I got names for all those ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's funny. Eh? Like we will lose a couple, but then a couple, you know, the, the um, recruitment for them is, is very strong up there, but there's some older nannies in there that haven't returned. So it's like we lose three or four and we get, we gain three or four and it's a very distinct herd of goats that are there yeah huh, very cool uh how about any uh eagles you ever see any bird predation on anything there yeah i gotta bite my lip on this one yeah it's <laughs> you know the majestic bald eagle actually the golden eagle is the biggest predator for them but uh right. i've never seen one taken but uh it's it's crazy when you watch them fly by and how fast that kid gets underneath that nanny and, and that nanny crouches down. Um, they definitely, they work hard at trying to knock a goat off. And I found, we found goat carcasses. My dad found one. And I found one at the base of the, of the bluffs, whether it fell or, or the Eagles got it. The reason we found it is because we found Eagles on it eating the carcass. Right. So, mm-hmm. but today I was just saying like, I just before this podcast, I was out on West side road and uh, looking for some lambs and how I find them is I just, I don't even look at the, at the rocks. I look up to see where the eagles are. And sure enough, there's two eagles circling right where the lambs were. And I look down, yeah, there's a lamb. So they are very much predators of, of lambs and kids. That's for sure. Yeah. I think the predation rate is incredibly high and they obviously don't know exactly how high. And it's one of those things that there's not much you can do about it. Like you, you can't no. start hunting eagles, you know? No, so no exactly. And then we're doing uh, want to, but it's just like, ah, it's like a catch. Tw- like, come on, really? Like, get away because <laughs> yeah. i mean especially for you know in our sheep populations on the on a recruitment alone it's like it's, they don't it's the last thing they need is an eagle to pick them off right now yeah okay so there's all this reverence for goats and obviously you're closely connected to sheep too uh any goat hunting stories have you have you drawn a tag um how does that how does that fit into your, in your yeah psyche? I, I haven't drawn a tag drawn a tag yet and uh, i gotta stop applying for that one tag is I'll probably never, the odds are ridiculous. Um, so my cousin is, is really after me to get after a, a goat way up North. So we might look at that next couple of years with my job. It's really hard. Like my busiest time for me, uh, for my career is, is August and September or July, August and September. So it makes it difficult for to get away for a sheep hunt. So, but it, it'll happen one day. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, the focus of putting them back on the mountain is is a pretty good uh, a noble a noble task so i uh, yeah. appreciate that so let's talk i think you know we tried to put together a podcast here and you were down south on a, i think in utah were you doing some photography work let's talk a little bit about you know what you you keep busy with on the photography side of things these days yeah so actually it was it was nevada just outside of uh, vegas red rock canyon and valley of fire um it was a good compromise trip for my wife cuz she wanted to go to mexico and i really didn't want to go this year so I said, hey, Han, I found the, and it was when Darinette was down there taking some photos of these beauty rams and this red rock vista. And I'm like, oh, I want that shot so bad. So I remember that I'm sitting there on one Sunday morning. I'm like, I found a perfect resort for you, babe. And she's like, oh, yeah. And I showed her the, this red rock resort and a beautiful pool. She's like, oh, wow, where's that? I'm like, just outside of Vegas. She's like, when are we going? I'm like, I don't know. How's three weeks sound? <laughs> so we booked that trip. And. Now, don't get me wrong. My wife, she's an avid outdoorsman as well. And uh, she she came and we put on, I think, probably over 60 miles in the week looking for sheep. And she got her pool time, so it was good. But yeah, if anyone gets the opportunity, like 
if you go down to Las Vegas, just make the hour and a half trip uh, east and go check out that Valley of Fire. It is so cool to see bighorns in that fiery red rock. There's nothing like it. Um, I've got one photo just above my computer. I've already got it printed of a lamb. It was a tough conditions. We were we couldn't find them for the first two days, but then uh, the third day it came together. We got some good photos of some lambs, so it was good. Awesome. So when you pick up a camera now, uh, obviously the you know those pictures they don't taste quite as good as a, a tenderloin off an elk or something like that. But uh, how how's your enjoyment compared to out there and harvesting an animal? What's the comparison between the two? Man, it's almost the same. And I I'm in my opinion, I get to hunt. 12 months out of the year because I'm like, it's, I become a better hunter as I became a photographer because I'm with these animals. I've not only learned their characteristics, but especially like leading up to elk season, I'm, I'm in there be- just before season taking photos of them. So I got a head start on most guys, which is great. Um, so, and then when you get on a, and a big full curl ram that, you know, and I'm not talking like a West side road and clone around, but like a nice ram that you've taken your time to like checking your wins to get up on, even to take a photo of, there's not much difference between hitting that shutter button or that, or that trigger. Well, the only difference is I'm still clean at the end of it. <laughs> My car, <laughs> don't like get to go home with no work. So, um, and same thing with bug- like bugling elk. I love, I will say that I'm, I'm an elk nut. I love going out in elk season and calling elk in and, uh, getting them bugling at me and coming running in and, and slamming that shutter button. And, uh, uh, I haven't filled the tag on the six point, uh, elk. I haven't got an elk that, uh, my buddy got an elk that I, I got to some meat from that I got to help pack out, but I never got one myself, but one of these days I'll get that six point. I've called in six point preseason and I've called them out of province, but I haven't gone in my area, but it'll happen. Awesome. Danny. Well, Hey, um, we've, we've already taken an hour of your evening. You've been generous with your time. Um, we just can't thank you enough, you know, as one of our ambassadors, the, the, the work that you do and creating awareness and these dialogues and, and all the time you volunteer and put the effort in and, and reaching out with us with, hey, there's issues here. We need to deal with this. And, um, you know, and I think too, you know, if, if I could just sort of get on a soapbox for half a second, like for our listeners, you know, look at Danny, a guy that, you know, was never really involved, never heard of the Goat Alliance. And now you're one of their regional ambassadors, you know, it goes to show you that, uh, the the world's run by the people that show up, right? So it's, you know, people think, oh, I, you know, I don't need to get involved or, you know, how do you get involved? It's so hard. It's just make a phone call, pick it up and get involved. And it's, there's so much work. We need so much support. And, you know, for the society, the Alliance, um, these fishery organizations, Osceola, these groups that you're involved in, we're all involved in, they're run by volunteers. This, this is what we do and, and we need the support. So, I think you're an inspiration, man. I love it. I love what you do. Love uh, what you stand for and just so grateful for everything you do. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Greg, anything else to close her off? No, I think you guys covered everything and just appreciate what you do, Danny. And Great. Keep sending the content to us. (laughs) For sure, buddy. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm thinking, though, if you're such a prolific writer, which you are, and you've got fish and... (laughs) I think we need some sheep writing going on here, buddy. So, um, yeah, if you, if you, if, I know you got so much spare time on your hand, you're yeah, sitting yeah. around with nothing to do, right? So, um, yeah, we would love yeah, to have you. one in December. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, awesome. we can look at doing that for sure. Awesome. Love it. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate you. Thanks, guys.